to another episode of Dr. Me First. It's me, your colleague in medicine and coach in life, Dr. Freaking Aaron Wiseman. And I am talking today with a new colleague, Dr. Stephanie Bonney. She's a trauma surgeon in New Jersey, and she is here to tell us all about gun violence prevention. Now, you know, I grew up here in the Midwest, so it's like everybody and their dog has a gun. So I really, truly appreciated this conversation. So listen to it and then stick around afterwards for my kick of encouragement. All right, here we go. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Stephanie Bonney. Hey, it's great to be talking with you today. Thank you. It's great to be here. Why don't you tell the audience a little bit more about yourself? I am a trauma surgeon um, by training, and that's sort of my day job or my clinical job. I sort of took a pathway around the country to get where I am now, as many of us have. I, um, I grew up in Michigan and then went to Kalamazoo College for undergrad, um, which is like a small liberal arts Midwest kind of school, and then moved on to Chicago, uh, where I went to Rosalind Franklin University for medical school. And then I did my residency at the University of Illinois Metro Group in Chicago. And then I went on to do a fellowship in trauma and critical care at Washington University in St. Louis, and was invited to stay on the faculty there after I finished my fellowship. So I stayed there for a couple of years. But much like, I guess, many of us managing two career families, uh, my husband had uh, an opportunity in New York. Um, So I essentially came to New Jersey, uh, where I practice now as, um, I like to say, as a trailing spouse. He now, uh, he works in in law, in corporate law, and I uh, took a position as an assistant professor of surgery at Rutgers New Jersey Medical School in Newark, New Jersey, uh, where I am now um, practicing trauma surgery and uh, working in, in the medical school. Uh, my research focus or my non-clinical focus is primarily on violence and injury prevention. So I do a lot of prevention type programming, um, whether it's pedestrian or, or violence. And so my primary focus since I came to New Jersey has been on violence prevention. I manage a hospital-based violence intervention program, and I do a lot of research around um, gun violence prevention. I'm the surveillance core director for the New Jersey Center for Gun Violence Research, which is a research institute at Rutgers. And um, I've been involved for the past few years in the American Medical Women's Association, among many other organizations working for gun violence prevention. Um, And that organization, I um, have helped to chair and and spearhead the Gun Violence Prevention Task Force. Girl, I just have to say, you're an absolute badass. And I am just so honored to have you on the podcast here with me. And yeah, that's exactly what we're going to talk about today, which is gun violence prevention. Hit us. Tell us all about what we need to know as female physicians. <laughs> so I think it's important when you're thinking about violence prevention, or for those of you who may be interested in advocacy or research in this space, I think it's important to think of it a little bit like a Venn diagram. So there is violence and there is firearm injury, and they overlap in what is typically called gun violence, which is intentional interpersonal injury that is um, committed with a firearm. But there's a lot of violence out there that doesn't happen or doesn't involve a gun. And there's a lot of firearm injury that isn't necessarily intentional interpersonal violence 
primarily, you know, suicide is a big one, but also unintentional injury, or um, I don't like to use the term accident because everything is preventable, but, uh, you know, child access and um, unintentional injury with firearms. So they overlap in, in the area of gun violence, but um, I sort of think of them as two different spheres um, with two um, different ways of sort of addressing those problems. So I think that's like sort of the the jumping off point. And then um, it, it's actually a much bigger field than a lot of people realize. So there's like an entire body of knowledge and of folks working in things like domestic violence or child abuse. Um, and so those all sort of fall in that violence circle, but are not necessarily the space that I've been working in, um, which is primarily urban violence and urban violence prevention. And what got you into this space? So, you know, part of it is being a trauma surgeon. I mean, it's just, it's what I'm exposed to. I think I, I didn't like start up my life being like, oh, I want to be a gun violence researcher. But you know, different sort of opportunities come your way and, and you um, you sort of take them when they come to you. I remember like listening to sort of like podcasts like this, or I would listen to talks when I was younger and I would be really frustrated because I would see somebody that was like in a place that I wanted to be and hear their story. And it always sounded like um, they always had some like event of serendipity, you know, and I'm like, oh, so I just have to wait for some like lucky thing to happen to me. And I don't, I think, you know, in some ways, yes, but in some ways, like, you do make your own luck. And also, if you're prepared for, like, something to come your way, then then when it does, you're ready and, and you're ready to sort of take it and run with it. So I was, you know, primarily as a trauma surgeon, I was really interested in um, injury prevention. And, and when I was at WashU, I was in Missouri, and, um, you know, you sort of you get involved with what you see, right? So like in St. In St. Louis, there was a fair bit of violence, but there was also quite a bit of um, like texting and driving and highway um, um, car crashes. And there was a lot of train um, injuries, like people getting, um, trying to beat trains because there's a lot of trains in the Midwest. And so um, I, started doing stuff like that. I was doing like texting and driving awareness stuff for kids and helmet safety and then train safety, um, as well as a little bit of gun violence work. And then when I came to Newark, it was like, there was like a shift, you know, it's like, there was just so much gun violence. Um, and, and it became such a bigger piece of my practice, like a bigger piece of the pie. And, um, while there were a lot of efforts around gun violence in Newark and, and in other places, there wasn't anything specifically being done in the hospital. So I um, talked to my boss and said, you know, I really want to, I, I want to do something around gun violence. And he said, well, I think you should talk to, you know, these people. And he set me up with some mentors around the country and introduced me to some people that he knew. And it sort of became like, um, it wasn't like the people he, he, like hooked me up with immediately became my mentors. It's sort of like they got me to the right direction eventually. And so I feel like the first couple of years that I was in Newark was, you know, somebody would sort of give me a lead. And so I would call and I would make an appointment and I would go talk to somebody and they would say, oh, well, if you're interested in this, you should talk to this person, this person, and this person. And then, you know, eventually I sort of got my name out there. And also, um, 
met a lot of people and sort of found the the right set of, of mentors and collaborators who were able to help me. Um, and th that happened both in Newark in my university and then also sort of nationally. And then, um, so what I found um, was that one um, one gun violence prevention strategy is hospital-based violence intervention. And so these programs um, provide what we call wraparound services to victims of violence who are in the hospital. So like somebody gets shot, stabbed, you know, assaulted, whatever. Um, they come in the hospital and in addition to like the medical care and the hospital-based social work issues, we also um, provide them with a peer mentor who is somebody who's from the community, who works in the hospital, um, who helps set them up with things like, you know, job training, community-based organizations, help them, you know, address their goals, finishing school, um, developing financial literacy, um, and all, you know, whatever it is that that person needs in order to achieve their goals, we help hook them up with. And so what we found is that those programs decrease what we call recidivism, which is where somebody gets shot and then gets like shot again, or gets assaulted and then comes back assaulted again. Um, and it sort of breaks that, you know, what we call sort of cycle of violence. Part of the reason it's so powerful is that, um, you know, we it's this sort of um, fork in the road moment that happens in the hospital. So like, for example, um, we borrow this a little bit from like the cardiac literature. So like we all know, we all have like somebody that we know who's like overweight and has high blood pressure and smokes and doesn't eat well. And you can go all day long to that person if they're your uncle or your cousin or your neighbor or whatever and say like, hey, you should, you know, quit smoking and eat better and exercise. Um, and like, they're never ready to do it, but everybody is ready to like quit smoking and eat better and exercise when they're laying in a hospital bed having just had a heart attack. So the idea is with the violence work is that you can go into the community and say, look, if you, you know, didn't finish high school and don't have a job and maybe are involved in gang activity or, or you, um, you know, whatever, you, you are at very high risk of becoming a victim of violence, but that message is, is like much more amplified when you have just been a victim of violence. So that's um, what we capitalize on. Um, so I built this program and um, it's been, you know, pretty successful in my location. Um, and we actually um, have advocated for a, sort of a statewide network of similar programs that are getting some funding and, and it seems to be really taking root in New Jersey as like a really effective strategy. And then after that. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I love it so much. Yeah, it is. It's great. I mean, it's really, it is awesome to see something flourish, you know, that you feel like you had a hand in building. So it's great. Now tell me where it's springboarding from locally in your hospital, and it sounds like now it's spreading through the state. What's happening nationally? So these programs have been around in various iterations and forms, and I think actually one of the neat things about them is like there's not really a prescription for how they work. Um, there's sort of some general guidelines, but like, for example, you can find a pretty well-described um, if you're like a breast surgeon, you want to start a breast center, you can find a pretty well-described, well, well -described, 
you know, you need this, this many people doing this job and this many people doing this job and here's how the patients are going to flow and this is who you need to hire and this is what it's going to cost. Um, but with violence intervention programs, I think one of the things that we recognize that's really important is that um, they need to be really locally informed. And that, you know, what works in California isn't necessarily going to be what works in New Jersey and is not going to be what works in Texas because there's um, certainly local culture that's influencing the, the reasons why there's um, violence in these communities. That said, there are some factors that we know are always going to be associated with violent injury, like poverty and education and lack of opportunity and, and hunger. And so there are some general things that we can say, like, you know, if you have a program that you know, meets with people in the hospital and then, you know, provides them with the ability to do X, Y, and Z that is related to violence, and you should also talk to your community leaders, talk to the school system, um, and build additional portions of the program that are um, culturally relevant to your community, then, um, you know, you build a better program. So these programs have been around for probably close to 20 years um, nationally. Um, sort of the first couple programs were the wraparound program in San Francisco and, um, and some programs in Baltimore and um, Healing Heart People in Philadelphia. Um, and Project Ujima in Milwaukee. So there's there's been several of them. They're different. Some treat children, some treat young adults, some treat people across the lifespan. Um, others, you know, some also do domestic violence work, some don't, you know, so there's um, uh, various iterations of them. Um, but there is an organization that is sort of um, the parent professional organization for these programs called the Hobby, which is the Health Alliance for Violence Intervention. They have a website, thehobby.org, I think, or com, I'm not sure, but the Hobby, if you Google it, you'll find it. They have a conference every year and they put out some, some guidelines about how to start programs if you're interested. What we did, um, actually, I, I had very little to do with it other than to say, yes, this is a good idea, but um, sort of, uh, shortly after we started our program in Newark, really when we were still sort of piloting it, um, uh, the New, New Jersey legislature um, uh, offered up a series of bills to um, create a funding stream from the state to support these programs statewide. And so now, just in the last couple months, they've launched a statewide initiative of nine programs um, around the state. Um, that are going to be doing this work. Um, and that was that is uh, serendipity, I have to say, because um, there are people who've been sort of working at these programs and advocating them to their states for years and years and years. Um, and so being the first program in a state that then decided to put out a statewide initiative almost immediately really, really was very lucky. Um, but I think that um, other states are looking at this and looking at what's going to happen with this program very carefully and are going to consider similar legislation. There's also legislation that's up in the nationally to create um, funding streams through like CBC and some other sources to help support um, support programs around the country that are looking to either start or sustain their programs. And I think it's also really important to, to just note that, um, you know, we talk a lot about like finding the grants to implement the programs, but um, if you 
actually look at the cost benefit ratio of what's been done in other programs, the hospitals actually save money with these programs because those that sort of repeat episodes of violence that happen over and over and over again um, decrease. And you know, those patients are very expensive to the hospital system. Um, and by preventing them from coming back again, you render the program actually either cost neutral or in many cases, you save money for the hospital by having this extra service. Yes, I could definitely see where that's going with it. And I love too how you are bringing what you've done, but also how you've been a voice in AMWA. And talk a little bit about the partnership that they're doing for this. Yeah, so AMWA um, a few years ago started a gun violence prevention task force. And so they've been very involved with um, sort of two main, main organizations. One is Doctors for America and the other is a firm. Um, and a firm is the um, American Foundation for Firearm Injury Reduction in Medicine. A firm is a group that of doctors, mostly um, coming out of emergency medicine and surgery and psychiatry and psychology, who um, have um, gotten together and point, you know, very much pointed out that there is a lack of federal funding available for gun violence prevention research. So um, the the um, problem with sort of wanting to be an academic who studies gun violence prevention is that there's very little research available um, from the NIH or CDC. And so for folks whose really livelihood and career depends on getting funding from those sources, people tend to not want to become gun violence researchers because it's going to be very hard for them to get grants and support themselves. And the reason for that is um, there was an amendment um, to the omnibus. So the omnibus is like the is the bill that comes out every year that funds the federal government for the year. Um, and there was some language that was added to the omnibus in, in 1996 called the Dickey Amendment. And the Dickey Amendment said that none of the funds from CDC can be used to advocate for or promote gun control. And so this was interpreted a variety of ways. Um, but it created this sort of very chilling effect. And um, the NIH sort of followed suit for a while, but then has come back a little bit more. Um, and the Department of Justice has been funding some gun violence research all along, but it tends to be more um, directed toward the criminal justice space rather than the health space. And um, so essentially for, for doctors or for public health researchers or for other folks who are saying like, hey, gun violence is a problem and we want to devote our careers to studying the solutions, there hasn't been a really reliable or robust federal funding stream available, certainly not commensurate to the burden of disease. So like if you look at how much money we spend on things like HIV and malaria and, and cancer, I mean, those are all problems, but we're not spending a similar amount of money on gun violence um, when you consider the disease. And that's actually true for all of trauma um, and not just for um, gun violence. So a firm is an organization that says, you know, hey, this is a problem. Um, so if the federal government's not going to pony up money for, for gun violence prevention research, we're going to raise money to do it. And so they, um, you know, raise money and create um, a, a funding stream for young researchers who are looking to um, try to kickstart their careers. Um, and not, not even just young researchers, like, you know, 
any researcher really who wants to fund a project that um, is related to gun violence prevention. And so then there's a scientific advisory board and they look over um, applications for, um, you know, residents and fellows and, and physicians and other kinds of researchers who are interested in getting money for gun violence research. So AMA partners with them um, and supports their mission as well and, and, you know, encourages their membership to, to participate and apply for their awards and things like that. So it creates a partnership. And then AMA is also partnered with Doctors for America, and that's primarily more of a um, an advocacy stance. So, you know, going to the federal government and advocating for um, both um, sort of common sense gun laws. Um, we advocate for the safety of students in medical school. So that's particular that's particularly sort of directed at campus carry, like, you know. Um, that medical students should be safe um, in their medical schools um, and free of the threat of firearm violence in their schools. Um, and also that, you know, there should be, you know, we are almost constantly sort of advocating for federal funding. Um, it is worth noting that the CDC did um, allocate $25 million this past year. So it's sort of like, you know, the freeze is lifted kind of thing. Um, so hopefully that will continue. Um, $25 million is sort of a drop in the bucket. Um, that'll fund about, you know, maybe 10 or 12 projects, but um, it's worth noting that that, you know, has happened. So hopefully that will continue and that funding stream will expand. Yeah. Well, Dr. Bonnie, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your heart and your story and how you are advocating for this this cause that I think is so very important, and like you said, has been so underfunded for so long that we no longer can neglect this. If my listeners are totally invigorated like I am after hearing you talk about this, where can they connect with you or these other resources? So I think, you know, one of the best, I mean, well, I'm always like happy to take emails so people can email me directly if they want to like something specific and I'm happy to to mentor and um and to offer support or collaboration for those who are working um in this field or who are interested um and then I think you know a good way to sort of get a good lay of the land of what's going on is to um check out the web pages of some of the organizations we talked about so AMWA does have a um a page on their website, which is amodocs.org, um, and they have a page devoted to the Gun Violence Task Force. Um, I would definitely check out a firm's website, um, you know, consider a donation to a firm or hosting an event um, and check out some of the work that they're doing. You can follow all of these groups on social media. Um, uh, the Gun Violence Task Force for AMWA does have its own Twitter handle, which is um, AMWA GVTF, and also a Facebook page. And we post, you know, public health related um, studies or you know opportunities for for um, collaboration or research projects or scholarships and things like that. Um, I, you can follow me on Twitter. I my handle is at scrubbed in, like scrubbed into surgery, um, and um, I think also, you know, checking out your local sort of, if you're interested more in the advocacy space, you can check out some of your local advocacy organizations. Um, I think one of the biggest things that we can do is advocate for research. So, you know, write your senator, write your um, representative and say that this is a, an issue that's important to you. 
um, and that you want to see the, the research funding continue, um, you know, write to the CDC and say that it's a priority. Um, because I think that that's, that's where we're going to be able to make change is by um, having good science to, to back up um, the recommendations that we're making. was done in partnership with AMWA, the American Medicals Women's Association. And I have a quick message from my personal connection with AMWA that I want to share with you. The American Medical Women's Association was founded in 1915, and it's the oldest multi-specialty organization for women in medicine. I served as president in 2015, and it was fascinating to have women from all walks of life and in all types of positions be active members of AMWA to hear their stories. From the members, I reaffirm my decision that medicine is not my career, but my passion. I understand the dedication and determination of the women that not only have gone before me and to whom I owe a huge debt of gratitude for paving the way, but to those that are my peers and those that come after me. This is Teresa Rohr Kirchwaber. I served as the president in 2015. We ask you to join us in the American Medical Women's Association and encourage your continued enthusiasm for your career as a physician in medicine. Join us at www.amwa-doc.org. Thank you. Thanks, Dr. Roar Kirchgraber, for that quick message about AMWA and the amazing work and how everyone can get tuned into it. It really is a fabulous organization for women in medicine. Now I want to get into our kick of encouragement for today. And I was recently on a webinar and while listening, kind of checking email, but also listening, a quote just smacked me upside the face. And I want to share it with you today. It was, the speaker said, show up to the table and bring your own folding chair. You know, so many times we're encouraged to sit at the table, come to the table. But I loved how she put, no, you show up to the table and you bring your yard chair with you and you own it. And that's what I want to do today to encourage you in this kick of encouragement. What do you want in your life? What do you want in your work? Where do you want to bring your folding chair and sit down and say, I have arrived. My voice is here to be heard. I can contribute and bring value. And the next question I want to ask you is, why do you want this? Is it for internal reasons? Is it for external reasons? Not judging them either way, but understanding why do you want to really show up to the table and why do you want to make your place there? Because just as my interview with Dr. Bonnie, it wasn't some moment of serendipity. She kept showing up. She saw an issue that really spoke to her and she kept moving towards it. The third question I want to ask you is what internally is holding you back? Is it fear, worry, not feeling like you deserve to have something great in your life, shame, feeling guilty, or maybe something in the past that still has its claws in you from an experience? You know, we have to recognize that we really can do anything that we set our minds to and really keying in on what is it that's tethering you back so that you're not living in your fullest. Question number four is, what do you need to coach through to become the woman who lives her best life? Five, if you said, F it all, I'm doing it, what would you be doing right now? And six, 
What are the external factors that are holding you back? So we talked internal, but sometimes there are external, family, geography, financial, all of those. Identify them so that you can see them and work away from them. Number seven, who can I ask for help? Remember, delegate and ask for help. It takes vulnerability, but it pays off tenfold. Eight, what type of accountability and structure must I have to help myself move forward? Nine, what needs to happen to move my needle? And 10, if I really let go of all the stories in my head, what would the future look like for me? So there you go. That's your kick of encouragement today. Those are 10 homework questions that'll be in the show notes if you want to sit down and journal through them. Because my friend, it is time for you to show up at the table and bring your folding chair. If you want more kicks of encouragement, more fun facts, more quippy quotes from me, I ask you to come hang out to my free masterclass on June 28th at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. Again, the link will be in the show notes. Sign up. I will send you the information. I will not spam you. I don't do that crap. And I want to just invite you to come because this is going to be an event to help you clarify all of those questions. And also, if you can't make it to the masterclass, we'll be doing a replay. But I also have my Kindle book on Amazon now called Dr. Me First, named after the podcast to help you move from a life of burnout, brokenness and despair to a life that is joy filled and work that you love. So much goodness, my friend. You can have your dreams in this world. You can move forward. You are not alone. As I always say, remember, your life, your calling, your pulse matters. Blind and look the 